Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing this fine day? It's sunny and it's beautiful outside, so I hope you're feeling kind of full of the joys of spring this morning. I certainly am. I'm having a great day so far. So welcome back to the second part of our series uh, on the Italian job. The Italian job. With, uh, we're going to be looking some more this morning and again over the next few weeks at the book of Acts, chapter 10, and looking at the life of Cornelius, uh, the life of Peter, the apostle, um, and the events of the early church at this time in the book of Acts, and really unpacking what we can take from that for ourselves. And so last week, we were looking at Cornelius, the unlikely candidate, the unlikely candidate. And we were looking at his, his background. We were saying, you know, with a name like Cornelius, he probably came from a, a wealthy family, a Roman family. And a young man like that would probably have signed up for the army uh, purely for fame and fortune. That was kind of where he was coming from. We said he was serving in this particular part of the army, the Italian Regiment, hence the, uh, the name of our series, the Italian Regiment. And, uh, and we said basically the Italian Regiment was that part of the, uh, of, the, of the force that was loyal to Rome at the heart of the empire. So they would have conscripted in local men um, to serve in the army. And the Italian Regiment were there to kind of keep an eye on the local conscripts and make sure there was no mutiny, no rebellion from these newly armed local folk. Uh, and so Cornelius was sort of somewhere across between a, a military policeman uh, and someone from internal affairs. And if you've ever watched any American cop dramas, you'll know that the, the cops from internal affairs, you know, they're the ones you've got to watch out for. They're the meanest, they're the harshest, they're the toughest. And most of the time, they're the most corrupt on the force. I don't know if you've ever seen that from American cop dramas. And, you know, this kind of the plot evolves and these guys from internal affairs come in and you see them and you're like, well, he's a wrong one. You just know from the moment they appear. And then on and on and by and by, you're watching this guy throughout the movie. And then at the end, everyone goes, ah, it was the guy from internal affairs. He had the perfect cover. We would never have guessed it was him because, and, and you're watching it, you're like, when will they learn? You know, everybody knows that the people from internal, they're, they're the wrong ones. You've got to watch out for them. And that's, that's Cornelius. That's where he was. He was in that part of the army, keeping an eye on the other parts of the army. He was, basically, he was the wrong background with the wrong motivation in the wrong situation. He was a completely unlikely candidate for the dealings of God. And at times in our lives, we can feel like we're the wrong people, we're the wrong background, with the wrong motivation, in the wrong situation. But we can imagine this morning that like Cornelius, we could be an unlikely candidate used in the dealings of God. So I just want you to shake the hand of the person next to you or grab their shoulder if you think they need a little extra nudge this morning and say, you look unlikely. You look complete. You look, un- you know, I don't want to be rude here, but you look unlikely. You do not look like a likely candidate. But grab them again and say, God can use you anyway. God can use you anyway. It's a convention of unlikely candidates here this morning. So we're going to read back again in Acts chapter 10. Hopefully come up on the, on the screen for us. Um, we're going to come back to this early part of the story with Cornelius' experience. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, at Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, who we are getting to know well. I just love the character of Cornelius. I'm having such a great time 
um, working with this guy and learning from this guy. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout, God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that all you've laid down in the pages of Scripture for us to receive in these days. God, we pray that you'll help us receive everything that's in your heart to share this morning. God, I pray you'll help me communicate everything that I believe you put in my heart, and I pray you'll help us all receive and learn and grow as we study the life of Cornelius together. Amen. Amen. So we spent some time looking at why Cornelius could have been the wrong person, because he was an unlikely candidate. Uh, But this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at how God had formed him already to be the right person. Already by this time, as we enter Acts chapter 10, we can see that there must have been something of the dealings of God in his life that formed him from being an unlikely candidate into having a useful character for the purpose of God in that time. He went from unlikely candidate to useful in his character. And we don't know what the process was exactly that he went through. Um, but we do know something of the end product. So when we look at the life of Cornelius, you can see it's there in verse 2. Cornelius and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. I just think it's amazing. And so the three things that really speaks to me is that Cornelius had the character of a father, of a giver, and of a prayer. A father, a giver, and a prayer. So if you want to receive the character of Cornelius this morning, just look at the other person this morning and go, just like you feel it right from down, I'm going to get me some character this morning. Get me some character. I want to be a... Okay, we're going to move on from that. But that was a lot of fun. I had fun preparing it. So you can receive that character. You know, he was like a... He was a father, right? He was a father. And I suppose I mean that not just in the sense of biologically he had children, but I think he was a father in the sense that he had won the hearts of his family to follow God with him. You know, we read it in verse 2. He was a devout man. He and his whole family... Something in the way that he'd worked with his family and cared for his family and modeled faith and spiritual affairs to his family had captured their heart, had captured their attention. He'd taken them on the journey with him. And I don't just mean that biologically because I had this thought that you know, being a parent, being a parent is not just a position, it's a perspective. To be a parent is not just a position, it's a perspective. So some of you who are uh, cool and connected on the internet in the modern age will be f- friends with Karis in some way. And uh, you'll know probably that we have adopted 
Uh, every Thursday, we adopt this puppy, Inga, uh, the black Labrador husky who comes to, to our house. And uh, that's been a revelation, because for me, it's brilliant. So we have all the good things of having a dog, of you know, going for long walks and kind of the kids having a bit of fun and playing and messing on and so on, but with none of the downsides. It's brilliant. There's no vet's bills. There's no um, you know, poop in unexpected corners of the house. Um, there's just, it's all the good things of having a dog, but none of the bad things. So I'm having a great time um, getting to know Inga, Inga the puppy. Uh, and we went for a walk a couple of weekends ago uh, with Inga's actual owners, the people who are genuinely responsible for her, who for some reason have entrusted her to us regularly. And, uh, and so uh, th- this lady, Cat, was sharing... Uh, by the way, I think it's hilarious that the dog's owner is called Cat. I mean, what can you do? Um, uh, and just so you're not confused, I haven't changed the story. I'm not talking about it. Uh, anyway, so still with Cat, the owner of the dog. Love it. Uh, she, she was saying, you know, her whole bringing this puppy into her life, her whole perspective changes. You know, so we were out, we were down in Nunsmore Park, and she said, you know, when, you're, when you suddenly are responsible for this other person, albeit a puppy, your perspective changes because you're always kind of on the lookout for something. You know, you, you were in the park, but now you're not just in the park. You're like, oh, danger. You know, there's another dog on the, on the horizon. Danger, broken glass on the path up ahead. Danger, chips. Danger, kebab from last night. No, Inga, don't eat the kebab. You've got to rescue this dog from the kebab meat. I love kebab. Perspective changes. But the other thing is perspective changes for opportunity. You know, so when you have that experience, instead of just saying, oh, it's a nice day today, well, that's good, you kind of look out the window, you see a different opportunity. Oh, today's a lovely day, we could take Inga to the beach. You know, it's a new opportunity. You've driven the same route to work 100 times, 200 times, but suddenly you see parks and playgrounds and open spaces where you think, oh, there's a new opportunity, I could take Inga there. And that was what her mum, her her owner, Kat, was describing. You see, when you sort of start to serve other people and care for other people, you see the world with a totally different perspective. And I think that's how it was with Cornelius. He carried a father's heart because he carried a father's perspective. When he saw events happen, he didn't just think about them as, oh, what does this mean for me? And what does it mean for my life? And how does it impact me? You know, it wasn't sort of centered on himself, Cornelius. His thought processes were, what does this mean for other people? So I love it when you read the angel coming to him and speaking to him and saying, oh, send for Simon down in Joppa. The angel just speaks to Cornelius and doesn't say anything about anybody else in that time. And yet, by the time we get to verse 24, we read that Cornelius had gathered all his friends and family into his house. And when Peter goes into the house in verse 27, there is a large crowd of people gathered in the house. The perspective is, oh, I hear about this opportunity. And all he can think about is, how do I share that opportunity? How do I get that opportunity to connect with other people? How do I bring other people into this opportunity with me? You know, that was the the father's heart, the mother's heart, the the parental heart to look up and look around and share an opportunity with other people. And I love that that our pastors carry the father's heart and the mother's heart. They're right here right now, so I'll be careful what I say about them. But they do, they carry a father's heart and a mother's heart. People feel safe around them. And if you ever go to their house, it's really rare to go to their house and for it just to be the two of them at home. And partly that's because they keep taking in waifs and strays and lodgers and all kinds of strange people. I was one of them. We've been one of them at some point. Um, But partly it's because people just kind of congregate to their house. So 
on Friday after work, I, I went to their house um, because Karis, my wife, was there trying on bridesmaids' dresses. Um, and so was her sister. And so were two other grown ladies and two other children. And it wasn't that they were just in Clive and Sally's house doing the dressing. They were in Clive and Sally's bedroom trying on the bridesmaids' dresses. And if it was me, I'd have come in and I'd have been like, what are you doing in my house? You don't live here anymore. You don't live here anymore. Why are you in my house? Why are you in my bedroom? Is nothing sacred? And yet when Sally goes in, she's like, oh, lovely. Does anyone want a cup of tea? It's just, it's a different perspective. It's the mother's perspective. It's the father, it's a parent's perspective. I gather people, I create opportunities for other people. And I love that when I read the story of Cornelius because I think about this large gathering of people in his house. Now, one perspective, one possibility is that they arrive perfectly times like good church folk five minutes before the meeting started. That doesn't happen. So for all we know, they've been in his house for three days by the time that Peter arrives, eating his food, you know, wiping their muddy feet on his mosaic floor and putting their feet up on his ancient sofas and their kids training ye sticky fingers across his house. And yet Cornelius is like, oh, hey, come in. Don't worry about it. Be at ease because Peter's going to be here in a moment and we're going to have a message shared with us. All he saw wasn't the problems. He saw the opportunity for other people that he cared for. It's a father's perspective. One father's family I, I really admire, one family I really admire is the Timpson family. You've probably seen Timpson stores on the high street or in the supermarket. Uh, you, you, last time you needed a, a key cutting or a watch battery repair or a, a, a shoe rehealing, you probably went to a, to a Timpson store. It's a family-owned business and family-run business. And uh, John Timpson and Alex Timpson, John Timpson's still alive. Alex Timpson, his wife, passed away a few years ago. But they have such a heart of a mother and a father. Um, they, they ran this business for a number of years. Um, but as well, while they were running this business, over a 30-year period, they fostered 90 children. 90 children they had through their, through their home. And it was after their children reached school age and uh, John Timpson was working in the business. His wife was part of, of that, but also felt she had capacity to give something back to the people around her who needed it. So she decided, they decided together that they would embark on, on fostering. And uh, I've read various articles, uh, interviews with John Timpson. He said, the thing is, you never knew what you were going to come home to. So he tells these stories, you know, conceive it. So there's, there's more than 3,000 people employed uh, at Timpsons these days. They've got something like 1,500 branches across the UK, a multi-million pound turnover. He's at the top. His decisions affect the lives of, of more than 3,000 people. And he comes home in the evening after a hard day at the office to discover one, two, three children, triplets, is who they're fostering this weekend. That's what he walks home to in his kitchen. He says, you know, he'd come off the train from a meeting in London. They lived in Manchester, so several hours on the train he'd come home. He says he always remembers coming home one Friday evening and his wife greeting him at the door and saying, I'm so glad you're home. You need to go out again <laughs> because you need to go to the supermarket because we need formula milk, nappies, um, a spare pair of pyjamas. That was his life. He never knew what he was going to come home to. I admire him so much for that capacity. But the thing that I admire so much about the Timpson family is that it wasn't just the real power of the father's heart, wasn't just what they did and how they worked with the, the children they were caring for. Actually, the real power of a father's heart or a mother's heart is they imparted that to the next generation. 
So the three Timpson children uh, who, who are in their sort of, they're older now, they're established with their own families and children. And but the three Timpson children, the, the oldest daughter is a primary school teacher, so she spends her days caring for other people's children. And their youngest son uh, was a barrister. He trained as a lawyer, and then he went on to become a member of parliament, uh, and he served in parliament as the minister for children and families and worked to reform the foster care system at a national level. And their, third, uh, their, their oldest son, their third son, or their third child, uh, works in the business. So he runs Timpsons today. Uh, and in 2002, he visited a prison. And as he was visiting a prison, sort of walking around and seeing the, the events that were going on, talking with some of the governors and the staff and so on, he had this idea... What if we could find a way to help people come out of prison with a trade and a profession to go into? And so that began, began a relationship between Timpsons and the prison service where they send people in to train an apprentice, young men, young women, in the prison system, training them in, ironically, cutting keys, uh, but, but also... <laughs> I think that's like after a while you have to work up... Changing watch batteries, shoot, you know, all of the stuff that you find in the Timpson stores, they trained them, they apprenticed them, and so that they would be kind of going on day release into Timpson stores, serving customers, and then going back to lock up in the evening. And when they came out, they had a career and a trade and, uh, to go into. And as a result, the rates of reoffending from those people are super low. They have this principle in the Timpsons group that when uh, somebody comes out of prison and starts to work in the business, after a couple of days, you let them get their feet on the table. They're not stupid, but they are generous. So they try and get them established a couple of days, and then within the first week, they like to give them the day's takings from the till of that store and say, it's your job today. Take this to the bank for us. A thousand, two thousand pounds in cash. They have this principle that says, we are sending a message. You are a different person. You have a different future, you have a different career, you have different opportunities. We trust you. Take this money to the bank. And the rates of reoffending are super, super low. It is impressive. Why? Because the father's heart came from one generation, imparted to his son, and spread throughout a business. About 10% of the people working in the Timpsons business are former convicts. That is impressive. That is the father's heart, the mother's heart, a perspective that sees things differently. I was thinking about what this looks like for us. Some of us are parents, some of us are, uh, are not parents yet. But I think we all have areas where we can carry influence, where we can carry a father's perspective, a mother's perspective, a parent's perspective to, to serve people around us. And one thing, I read this quote this week about encouragement. It was such a great quote that I felt I had to, to share it with us today, because I think that's one of the great things about being a parent, is to be an encourager. And uh, you may have come across another business I admire, the Chick-fil-A stores in the States. If you haven't been there or eaten there, there's great food. It's kind of like KFC, only I have to admit it's a little bit less greasy, so it's good. Um, and Chick-fil-A was set up some years ago by a, by a Christian guy, and it's still in their family. And it's run according to Bible principles. They run the business according to Bible principles, which, uh, by the by, I'm firmly convinced Bible principles are good business principles, okay? And, uh, and so they give, they close every Sunday. They have Sundays, all their stores are closed up and down the nation. They don't do any business because um, they want to release their staff to have Sunday to go to church and to be with their families. Not everyone who works in the business is a Christian, but they've got the option. They have Sundays the business closes. And... Uh, uh, Samuel Truett Cathay was the founder of that business. And I, I read such a great quote from him. And he said, someone asked him 
um, how do I identify? How do I, how do I find? How do I spot? How do I identify the person who needs encouragement? And he said, find someone who's breathing. They're the person that needs encouragement. So it's great insight into human nature. And that's the heart and the perspective of a father and mother. Well, find someone who's breathing. You can encourage them in some way. So I want you to kind of turn to your neighbor and just check that they're breathing. First of all, you can check that. And then I want you to encourage them. I want you to practice because this is how I think Cornelius must be to practice. Say something encouraging to your neighbor. Say, hey, I enjoyed your singing this morning. And look, if you have to lie on that one, that's okay. Say, you look great this morning. Say, you work so hard to serve our family. Say, I, appre- you know, I appreciate your friendship over all these years. I want you to speak that, speak that word of encouragement. I think it would make a phenomenal difference to all our lives if we go on and learn from Cornelius and be those encouraging people who serve the needs of others. You know, Cornelius also had the character of a, of a giver, a giver. He was a giver. See, this is one of the first things that stood out to me in this passage because the angel specifically mentions it. He calls it out in verse 4. He, the angel says, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as, as a memorial offering before God. And you know, the thing is, I, I just recognize that God notices how we spend our money. God notices when we spend our money wisely and well. God notices where we choose to invest our money and our resources. And uh, I always feel, I should, when I preach on, on finances, I feel like I should always caveat this by saying, you know, International Harvest Church is completely solvent. Just want you to know that. Um, let, me show, let me share some encouragement. We have got a great treasurer. I'm looking for our treasurer. We have got a great finance manager. We've got a great secretary of trustees who keeps us all on track with planning and budgeting and spending wisely. Yeah, we've an, a, a, it's an exciting and um, privileged position to be part of seeing how the finances of the church are spent and to see how we've been able to invest in our building and so on over the years. So I feel like I should just sort of clarify. We're solvent, okay? And yet... The principle in the Bible is that God notices how we spend our money. I'm not after your money yet. But the thing is, I just happened to read in Acts chapter 10. I was reading this in my devotions at the start of the year. uh, About the same time that I was reading a a, a book by a journalist who was writing a kind of commentary on church in the United States. And it just happened to be at around the same time that I read this statistic Uh, in his book, and here it is. He said that in the United States, churches, 17% of Christians say that they tithe, but only 3% actually give 10% or more of their income to the Lord's work. 17% of Christians say they tithe, but only 3% give 10% or more of their income to the Lord's work. And that shocked me. And I happened to be reading at the same time Cornelius used by God, recognized for his heart, recognized for his generosity, recognized for what he carried himself. And I read this about the church in the United States. Now, I'm confident that if we did this study in our church, it would be a much better statistic than this. It would be fine. You know, it shocks me as well. 83% of the, of the church in the States don't even pretend that they tithe. But anyway, I'm sure it would be much better in our, in our congregation in Newcastle. And yet God notices how we spend our money. 
And the, one of the guys who was writing this study, an academic, his name is Professor Mark Ottoni Wilhelm. Mark Ottoni Wilhelm from Purdue University. He's an economics professor. And he said, it is wrong. It would be wrong to look at this as a money problem. An economics professor. But he went on to say exactly what Jesus said. How we spend our money, what we spend our money on, shows what we value in our hearts. It's always reassuring when the economics professors agree with the words of Jesus. So that's how he reflected it. Cornelius might have entered into the army to make a a quick buck for himself. That was probably a huge motivation for him. He was financially motivated, probably because that was just the norm for young men from Rome joining the army to serve overseas. And yet God had done something in his character, in his life, so that by the time we reach him in Acts chapter 10, he was giving his money away to those who needed it the most. Powerful how God can impact us and change our lives. You know, lastly, on this character list, Cornelius was a prayer. He was a prayer. Cornelius was a prayer. Uh, And I think at some point we'll preach a long sermon on prayer. I hope you can sign up for that on another day. But today, the only thing I want to say about this point on Cornelius being a prayer was, if you want to receive the character of Cornelius on this front, seven o'clock tonight, prayer meeting. That's our opportunity. That's all it is, you know? I don't need to preach a long sermon on prayer. I just need to tell you to come and pray. So the last thing I want to say is, let me finish. Let me talk about Cornelius, the unwavering optimist. Cornelius was an unwavering optimist. So look at verse 2. It says, verse 2, Cornelius prayed regularly or or continually. So uh, I think the, the NIV uses regularly. The ESV says continually. There was this sense in Cornelius's life that his day by day pattern of living activity was consistently, consistently in prayer. And somehow this spoke to me about the spirit of the optimist that existed in Cornelius's life. And I felt like maybe he kept praying because he, he just felt to himself, hey, you never know. Maybe this is the one that makes all the difference. Maybe this is the one that tips the scales and releases the miracle. Because I was looking at the life of Cornelius and I was thinking, we don't know for how long he had that character that was useful for God. Maybe he was in that place of giving and being a father and praying. Maybe he was in that place for six months. Maybe he was living that lifestyle for a year. Maybe he was living that lifestyle for three years. We don't know how long he was investing and giving and caring and creating opportunities for other people. We don't know how long he continued like that, but I think he did because he felt, well, who knows? Maybe, maybe today's the day when the breakthrough comes. You know, we look back from the perspective of history and we can see, oh, that was nice. You know, Cornelius and met the angel and God really used him to start the Gentile church. Cornelius didn't know. He didn't know from where he was stood that at some point, probably, in it, I mean, who of us stands up and wakes up in the morning and goes, well, probably today's the day the angel is going to show up. But Cornelius just kept on doing the right thing, the unwavering optimist, because I think he believed that sooner or later, God was going to make a difference. Sooner or later, God was going to show up in his life. Sooner or later, all that praying, all that giving, all that parenting, it was going to pay off the unwavering optimist. I don't know, maybe there's people here who have been struggling away at something. 
Maybe you can feel you've had that moment in life where you're saying, God, am I just spinning my wheels here? Am I struggling on with something? Am I you know, spinning away and working away, but God, is this going to come to anything? Hey, maybe the life of Cornelius can be a lesson for us this morning. Maybe we can re- receive something from his life, his perseverance, his unwavering optimism that sooner or later you keep doing the right thing. Sooner or later, God's going to show up. It might come as a surprise. It might come as a surprise that, that I'm not a born optimist. Thank you, church, for your support. It might come to some people, it might be a surprise. To some people, it might be a surprise. I did not spring from the womb, you know, spouting about the good things of God. I have to confess that most of my life just... I was probably a pessimist. I, so I, I remember, I remember um, just leaving sixth form. And uh, about that time, a band called Travis uh, released their first album. Uh, and one of the songs on that album was, Why does it always rain on me? And I heard that song and I was like, finally, somebody understands. Because that's, I, that's what I thought was true. That's just how I thought the world was. I just thought, the, you know, I just had that mentality. But I think if we can learn something from the life of Cornelius, we can learn that you can learn to be an optimist. Optimism can be taught and optimism can be learnt. And I I think it's great, you know, the experience of my wife, of Pastor Clive, of being in this church, of having my life spoken into, of getting the Bible into my brain, of reading good testimonies, Christian books, started to change my thinking and my thought processes over the year, I think I've learned to become an optimist, not because of background or temperament, but because of the work that God's done in me over the years. And so um, a couple of weekends ago, a couple of weekends ago, my, my twin brother uh, sent a, a WhatsApp, a message around our family WhatsApp group. Uh, and he said this, he said, uh, we're meeting some friends at the lookout for a walk this afternoon, the lookout doesn't mean much to you guys. To, to me, the lookout means a place of boggy mud. Uh, it's, a, it's a big kind of forest park not too far from my parents' house. And you know, even on a day like this, you would take wellies and you would take a spare pair of clothes for yourself. For the children, you would take a portable bath and you would just kind of throw them in there and not let them into your car until they were clean again. It's, even in the height of summer, that place is never dry. And my brother sent this text around. He said, we're meeting friends at the lookout for a walk this afternoon. I've just looked at the weather and thought, well, if it's raining, at least the car park won't be busy. And he sent us a second message a minute later. He said, thanks, mum, for teaching me optimism. You know, I think Cornelius can teach us all some optimism. And if you feel like this morning you are the unlikely candidate, hey, be optimistic, because God can use you anyway. And if this morning you're feeling like, oh, I don't have the character for this, well, be optimistic. God can form in you a useful character. And if you're feeling this morning like, uh, why does it always rain on me? Well, be optimistic, because you'll get a better car parking space. So let's pray this morning that we can receive from Cornelius' life into our own life. So why don't you stand with me this morning?
You know, I do feel like there's a, there's a key opportunity for us this morning. I've shared about how important it is how we, how we speak to other people, how we speak to uh, people around us, maybe even particularly how we speak to our children. Uh, and I feel like maybe there's some people here this morning who feel, oh, well, it's very nice that you've had an opportunity to be taught optimism, but my parents didn't teach me any optimism. They taught me that life is full of hard knocks. And maybe there's people here this morning who maybe never had that opportunity to learn optimism when they were growing up. And I feel like, you know, there's just an opportunity to kind of recognize that before God. Uh, and I want to speak to anyone who's feeling that in their heart. Oh, I wish I'd had more encouragement from my parents. I wish they'd seen that I was breathing and I wish they'd encouraged me. Hey, I really believe that God sees that need in your life this morning. I really believe God's heart is directed and turned towards people who wish they'd received more encouragement from their own parents. And I believe that his heart and his words this morning would be to encourage you to say, hey, you're doing good. Keep on, don't give up, keep praying. Keep carrying that perspective that cares for other people. I really believe God's got a heart for people who need that encouragement this morning. Just as we're praying in this time, I feel like there's an opportunity to kind of respond uh, to that sense in the spirit. And just while we've got our eyes closed and no one's looking, if you feel like, hey God, I, I kind of feel like I wish I'd had more encouragement from my parents. I wish I'd received more encouragement in my life as I was growing up. I wish people had said more positive things to me. Just place a hand over your heart where you are. I'm going to pray for you this morning. So Father, I thank you for every person who feels or knows that they could have received more encouragement from their parents as they were growing up. I thank you that you see the needs in our lives. I thank you that you see the encouragement that we need, good words that we've spoken over us. So Father, I pray for every person responding to this. You'll speak a good word to them this morning. You'll speak an encouraging word to their heart, to their spirit this morning that says you care, that you notice, that you're proud of them, that you think they're doing great. I pray you'll speak that encouraging word to people here this morning. And if you know you want to be someone who carries that encouraging spirit to speak words of life, words of encouragement, words of positive motivation to other people, I just want you to raise a hand uh, with me this morning. I'm preaching some of this word to myself. This, you know, I, I read a quote about encouraging other people because I need to be reminded to encourage other people. So I'm preaching to myself this morning. So Father, I thank you that your heart is to encourage us and for us to be those who sow outside of ourselves, who give words of life and encouragement to other people. I thank you for every person responding to you this morning. And I pray that in our hearts will rise great encouragement so that we can be those who give encouragement, speak encouragement, share encouragement, share life, share faith with other people. I pray that you'll do such a work in your church that we'll speak great words of life and faith to those around us, to our own children, to our friends, to our families. We pray, Lord Jesus, you'll help us be those speakers of good words. And I've written out a prayer for us this morning. I'd love to, for us to pray this together. Why don't I read it through first and then we can read it through together and really pray it out together. So I choose to let you form my character so I can be a father or a mother. It, you get the point. If you're a guy, you should say father. If you're a lady, you should say mother. I, I just want to clarify. 
so that I can be a father, a mother, a giver, and a prayer. Help me to be an optimist today and every day. Amen. Let's make this prayer together. Father, I choose to let you form my character so I can be a father, a giver, and a prayer. Help me to be an optimist today and every day. Amen and amen.